Today's scripture reading, it comes from Psalm chapter 95, verses 1 through 11. And the sermon title is Gospel Worship. Again, Psalm chapter 95, verses 1 through 11. And the title is Gospel Worship. And so this is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The seas is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as, at the, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they see, had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We are continuing our Sunday morning te teaching series that we're calling our vision series, where for the next several weeks, we're asking the question, what's the vision of the church? Who are we and where are we going? And last week, we argued that our fundamental distinctive as a church, our number one core value, is that the gospel has to be central to everything else that we do here. That what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection forms the interpretive grid through which we see all of life, the way that we understand all of life, and that it's only by relying on what Jesus has done for us that we can now live out this new life that he's brought us into. It's the core distinctive of our church. It's the very first one that we discuss when you go through the new members class because we want to make sure that everything that we do at Renewal is connected in some way to the gospel, that the gospel is central to all that we do here. Today, we're going to study how one of the primary ways that we live out this gospel centrality is in worship. Now, why is that a distinctive of Renewal Mainline? Because I could imagine someone saying, I, isn't that what all churches do, and isn't that what all churches do every week? It's a distinctive of Renewal, because as we said last week, our fundamental difference as a church is not with respect to other churches, but our fundamental difference is with respect to the larger world. Let me just take one example and think about power and privilege. Our world worships power and privilege, holding on to it as much as it can, while our God gives up his power and privilege for the sake of those who have none. So if our worship is centered on him, if it honors him, values him for how he relates to power, and we proclaim by worshiping him that that's what we honor and value, that can't help but make us stand out in the larger world. So when you talk with your friends, when you describe our church, you have to have in the front of your mind that we worship this God, not some other. That's one of our distinctives. It's 
first, distinct from the rest of humanity. But secondly, gospel-centered worship is a necessary distinctive for us here at Renewal. Because even within the larger church, and you think capital C church here, even in the larger church, we can slide into believing that the church is primarily a human institution. We can think that individual churches are primarily run by human beings. We can slide into thinking that your participation is primarily about you, about whether or not you like coming, whether it's fun, whether it's an enjoyable experience. We can slide into this idea that individual churches exist primarily to meet some human need that we have, to promote some human cause. All those things are important. They may be secondary factors, but they are not primarily why we're here. They're not the primary reason that we come together. Instead, we are here primarily because God himself has called us together for his sake and for his glory. And one of the clearest places that you see that, where you see whether we're on board with that or not, is when he calls us to worship. And so to see more clearly why gospel worship has to be one of our core distinctives at Renewal, we're going to focus on three things this morning. First, we're going to recognize that God calls us to praise. Second, we're going to realize that there's a problem revealed by praise. And then third, talk about how we can refocus ourselves on praise. So God calls us to praise. There's a problem revealed by praise and how we refocus ourselves on praise. Let's dive in. First, verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. It's very tempting to hear that purely as a human being calling us to praise. But you think about it for just a moment, you realize it's here in the prayer book of God's people. It's here in the Psalms, in Scripture. And in that sense, this exhortation to come and praise comes from the Lord. He makes it part of His Scripture. You have to hear this as Him being the one who stands behind it, as His word that you hear. Which I think then makes you ask, why? <laughs> why does God think this is an important part of what it means to be the people of God. Why does he think it's a necessary part? You realize first that praise is normal for us as human beings. Praise is built into us. We spent a lot of weeks this past winter realizing that at our most basic level, human beings are worshipers. We orient our lives around what we value most, and whatever that highest thing is, that ultimate thing, ends up controlling all that we do, and it controls all that we say. In other words, because we're worshipers, we are by nature people who praise. We have to. And so as you go through daily life, you will hear people praising. You'll hear people talk about how great a government is or how great a celebrity is or a sports team. You'll hear people talking up a career, a school, a college, their new smartphone. Human beings naturally praise. We can't help it. We find something beautiful, we find it fulfilling, we find it life-transforming, and we can't help but call attention to that thing. We ourselves value it, and we call other people to value it, to notice what's so amazing about it. That's normal. What's not normal is healthy praise. What's not normal is good praise, because we don't always praise what's best. 
And for that praise focus to be healthy, we have to be called to praise. We have to be directed as to what to praise says to what to praise that is best. You've all had this experience where there was something that you praised that later turned out to be bad for you. There's that boyfriend, that girlfriend that you told everyone was so amazing, so wonderful, so incredible, and then you had to walk it all back later when they weren't. We do that, right? We praise things to other people, things that we later realize we should not have praised that. The car that you told your friend to get that broke down constantly, that great investment opportunity that wasn't. The smartphone that you held up and told everybody how life-changing this thing is that then got you hooked on pornography. We praise the wrong things. Our society does this at a higher level, right? We, we praise diet pills, we praise herbicides, asbestos. And then later when the lawsuits come rolling out, we realize that, that, that was a bad thing to praise. The antidote to praising things that hurt us or that hurt the people around us is to learn to praise what never will hurt us or the people around us. And that's a major reason why God calls us to praise Him. See, we have to realize in a very significant way, God does not need our praise. You and me, seeing His glory, that's good, but it doesn't give Him anything that he doesn't already have. It doesn't change him any more than praising your cell phone will change your cell phone. So then what does praising do? Well, a couple of things. One is that it realigns us with him, realigns us with what he values, and it gives us the chance to say out loud, this is what's most important. He is most important. This is what's most ultimate to me. But because we praise together, it lets us say to each other, this is what should be most ultimate to you also. It refocuses us, redirects us to what is essential, and that's something that every one of us needs in this world. Paul Miller wrote a piece on prayer this past week in the PCA's online magazine. And he tells a story there of when he and his daughter were working on a school science project together. They weren't quite sure that they were doing it right, and so they prayed before conducting the actual data gathering. And when it came time to write it up, she asked him what they had done first, and he told her that they'd prayed. And she said, I can't write that. And he asked her, why not? We prayed. That isn't how it works, Dad. They don't want us to say that. They don't want us to say that. Paul listed all the experiences his daughter has had, how she's gone to Christian schools her whole life, how she regularly attended church, Sunday school, went to a Christian camp in the summer, how all of her friends were Christians, how her brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles were all Christians. Paul says, basically, my daughter has lived in a Christian ghetto. And yet somehow there's a they who has more influence in her life in the public sphere. They don't want us to say that. Paul goes on to talk about how this is a secularism in our society, it's an influence that denies God, it denies the whole spiritual world, and his daughter feels the pressure of that secularism. It just feels odd to her to talk openly about God, even in a Christian environment. How do you combat that pressure? 
one important way is to praise. You are publicly reaffirming your commitment to this great God. You are proclaiming how great he is. You're proclaiming how great he is to you. And if it, you're in school right now, students, whether you're middle school, high school, college, beyond, this is really critical. You cannot afford to skip praise on Sunday morning. You can't afford to come on a Sunday morning and just check out during the liturgy. You can't afford to sit with your friends and talk to each other during the time of praise. You need to what? You need to throw yourself into it. Because you need to get used to saying out loud what you believe. And you need to get used to hearing yourself say out loud what you believe. Now, I'm picking on students. This is true for all of us. But it's especially true if you're in school. When you are actively learning what this world thinks you need to know. Can't afford to think that praise is optional. It's one important reason you pray. But you also do so, second reason, because it increases your enjoyment of God and of what he values. It's to allow you to share in the delight that God has in his own glory. See, God thinks well of himself because he thinks accurately about himself. And so God avoids two dangers. He doesn't think too highly of himself. He avoids arrogance. He doesn't think too little of himself. He avoids false humility. Instead, he sees himself accurately, and he sees that there is nothing bad in him, which means there's nothing that he reveals himself that will ever be bad for us. That's part of his glory. You realize that nobody is ever going to file a lawsuit in eternity charging God with some kind of harm. God sees that. And by calling us to praise Him, to revel in His goodness with Him, He's inviting us not just to see His goodness, but to share in His joy that He takes in being good. Think about it this way. Sally and I regularly take walks together. And I've been noticing this spring that as we walk, we're pointing things out to each other this pink flowering tree over there, that red bud over there, the maples with the new leaves over here, that forsythia bush, those tulips. Now why? why? Why don't we just look at those things and enjoy that quietly? Why do we have to point that out to each other? It's because there's a sense in which your enjoyment increases as you share it with someone else. We went to Longwood Gardens this past week could not stop praising things to each other because the delight is greater when it's shared. And it's funny because it's not just me and Sally. You can hear everybody else doing the same thing in their little clusters. You see complete strangers doing it with each other. Somebody had to tell Sal while she's looking at some of the tulips, aren't these really incredible? And you realize that this is just part of what praise does. It involves all of us to enjoy something more than when we do it on our own. You might not do this with flowers and plants, but you do this with other things, don't you? It's the same reason why you would call someone over to see the instant replay. It's why you ask your friend the next day if he or she saw that incredible play, why you describe it to each other even if you both saw it. It's why you tell your friends about good restaurants or a new series on Netflix or about a concert that they might like. 
It's because our enjoyment, our delight increases as we share that with others, as we enter into praise and tell others about how great this is. Does that mean then that when you praise God that you do that in order to get a certain feeling? You realize no, because then you're not praising God. You're not worshiping Him as much as you're worshiping the feeling. And you have to keep that difference in mind. Worship God, praise Him for who He is, and the delight comes along with it. You get both, God and delight. But worship the feelings, worship getting the feelings, and you basically have what? You have Sunday morning karaoke. You have sober karaoke where you're just singing, trying to enjoy the experience of singing with other people. If that's the way you enter into praise, you will not get God, and you won't get the delight. You won't understand what praise is all about because you're not really interested in Him. And that's a realization that you might come to in the middle of praise. You might start to realize while you are singing that you're not really here for Him, but that you are here for something else. That brings us to point two, that there's a problem that's often revealed by praise. Look halfway through the psalm at verse 7. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, you see what's happening here? There's a warning in the middle of a worship song. There's a warning not to harden your heart. What does that mean? It means that you can be in the middle of praising God, seeing Him as He is, hearing what He's like, hearing what He values, saying it, hearing what kind of life He wants for His people. In that sense, you are hearing His voice in what you're praising, and you start to realize that you don't like that. You don't like this kind of God. You don't like the kind of life that He calls you to. You're tempted to reject what you're hearing, to harden your heart against Him. And God knows that's possible. And so he puts a warning here not to harden your heart while you're in the middle of praise. Verse 8, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, there are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, God's talking there about a time from Israel's past. He brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, brought them into the wilderness because he was taking them to the land that he'd promised to give them. And the people loved being set free from slavery, but they didn't love where God led them. And they didn't love how he chose to lead them. They didn't have everything that they expected to have from him when they expected to have it. And they assumed that their perspective, their take on things was right and that God was wrong. So verse 9, they put him to the test. That means essentially they put God on trial. They judged him based on how they thought he should take care of them. Now why is that? What's going on at Meribah and Massa? This is the fourth time in a very short amount of time when the Israelites look at where God led them and they believe that he did so with bad motives, that he was out to hurt them. And so each of those times they grumbled against Moses, God's representative, 
and accused him, they accused God by accusing Moses, of bringing them out into the desert to die. They said, you don't love us. You don't care about us. You're only interested in killing us. They charged God. And you need to keep in mind here that the things they're facing are not small. There's an army coming to kill them. There was no water to drink, no food to eat. Those are not little things. Real threats to them, real threats to their children. But this is important. Each time, instead of wondering how God would meet this new challenge for them, they grumbled. They didn't make themselves sit down and remind themselves of the past. They didn't remind themselves of how much God had already loved them. They reminded themselves instead of what they thought would be better. And they complained because it's not what God gave them. And even though God came through each time, that still did not change their opinion of Him or their confidence in Him for the next time. Okay, that's the backdrop, the relational history that came before what happened at Massa and Meribah. Let's get a little fuller sense of that time, Massa and Meribah, in Exodus chapter 17. We learn there, verse 1, that they, the Israelites, camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. This is now the second time that they're having trouble with water. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And when God evaluates that time from the perspective of Psalm 95, when he looks back on it, summarizes it, he doesn't say, you know what, <sighs> I get it. That was really hard. It makes sense that they would complain, grumble, quarrel, grumble about what they didn't have. It's okay. They get a pass for the extenuating circumstances. God doesn't say that. Instead, he says, Psalm 95, verse 9, that they hardened their hearts, that they had seen clearly his work, that they had clearly seen how he had provided for them. They saw that his heart was for them, that he did care about them, that he had every intention of providing for them. They, see, they had seen all of that, and now it didn't matter when they didn't have what they wanted. In a very real way, they only liked having God shepherd them when they agreed with how they thought he should shepherd them. They only wanted a shepherd who agreed with them. So when he did what they wanted, they were happy. They praised him loudly in Exodus 15 after they saw him wipe out the Egyptian army. But when he didn't do things that they liked, Exodus 17, they grumbled. They didn't like how he was leading them. And so he says, Psalm 95, verse 9, they put me to the test. Sure, they grumbled against Moses, but that's only the leader that I gave them. It was really me that they weren't happy with. It was me they were testing. They didn't assume, God says, that I had good plans for them. They didn't come to me and say, we know you love us. And what we're dealing with is really hard. Could you, could you tell us how to live with this? 
how we should approach it. Instead, it's like God saying, they assumed that I didn't love them. And they assumed that they knew what they needed better than I did. And they assumed that what needed to change was not their hearts that grumbled and complained, but me, that I had to change despite what they had already seen of me. And so, verse 9, they thought that I had to prove myself to them, to prove that I was with them, that I would take care of them. And the proof of that would be whether or not I gave them what they wanted. In other words, at Masa and Meribah, the people worshipped most above all other things, food and water. They worshipped that more than they worshipped God because they thought food and water would give them a better life than God would. And so when they heard his voice, that this is where they should go, they hardened their hearts. They put him to the test, put him on trial. Old Testament scholar Alan Ross puts it this way. What started as a general complaint, murmuring among themselves, escalated to formal charges brought at Meribah, putting God to the test by not trusting him. Instead, they challenged him. And because this shows up in Psalm 95, you realize that this is not a problem for you if God calls you to wander through a desert in 1440 B.C. That instead it's a problem for all of us, for any of us. It's something that God has to warn us about because it's something that can crop up when we're supposed to be worshiping him. See, it's not a problem of the desert, not a problem created by our circumstances. It's a problem of the human heart that we always find something wrong with how God leads us. And our inclination is to complain about it. Psalm 95 tells you that you can see and experience God's goodness to you personally and forget all about it when he puts you in a situation that you don't like. We've got really short memories when it comes to how faithful he is to us how committed to our good he is when he leads us into something that is not exactly the way that we would have cared for ourselves. And Psalm 95 says that as you're called to praise him, if that unhappiness with him is in you, that lack of trust in him, if that's in you, you'll be tempted to harden your heart against him, even in the very act of praising him. Now, why is that? It's because the first half of the psalm that we skipped over, in that first half, God calls you to go all in in worship. One of the commentators, Beth Tanner, notes there's real urgency in those first couple of verses. There's urgency and enthusiasm. You can't read it as, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord when you get around to it. Instead, you have to read it as, Come! As in, move it, let's go. There's a sense of urgency there, a sense of enthusiasm, that you're to make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, that you use the same level of energy in praise as you would in war, or if you were raising a cry of alarm. In other words, if we took this seriously, our praise in this room would be deafening. It's praise that uses all the force and all the power that the human body has, uses all the energy you have, not to praise the 76ers, 
cheer for them till your horse, not to sing fly eagles fly at the top of your lungs, but to use all that energy and more to praise God. And that you do that with an incredibly positive attitude. It's a joyful noise. It's full of thanksgiving. It results in songs of praise. And there's no way that you can do that. No way that you can enter into that if you don't think that God is the absolute best that there is. You can't praise him in this way unless you think that his ways in leading you and guiding you, providing for you, are the very best that you could ever have. Do you see that if we actually obeyed God and we entered into this all-in kind of praise, how that would confront you? How you can't bellow out praise to God if in your heart you're grumbling about how he's leading you and how he's taking care of you. If you're unhappy with him because he's not giving you what you want, when you want it, in the way that you want it, there's no way you can praise like this. And you'll realize halfway through trying that you're tempted to harden your heart against him. To just go through the motions. Mouth the words to songs, songs that you don't really believe, that you don't really want to enter into. <laughs> because they force you to think about the Lord and you're really not all that impressed with him. That's the problem that praise reveals. That too often our mood in worship, our enthusiasm, our energy depends on whether we like what God's doing in our life. It depends on whether we like where God is leading us. If we praise him loudly when he rescues us from slavery, but don't praise him when he leads us into places where there is no water, then we're not really praising him. Our praise depends on what? On, on our circumstances. And not on the God who promises to never leave us alone in our circumstances. Our praise depends on our circumstances and on whether God is giving us the life that we want. Which means we're not really praising him because he's so amazing. Instead, we think having different circumstances would be amazing. And we're only happy with God as long as he gives us what we want. And if that's the case, then God says, okay, here's my evaluation, verse 10. Your heart has gone astray, and you haven't known my ways. You don't love me as much as you love something else, and you don't love what I do or how I want you to live. So verse 11, if that's really what you want, then you can have it. You really don't want me? Then you shall not enter my rest. Those are really heavy words that we have to let sink in. Those are words that are hard for us to hear because they challenge our age that tells us that we are only authentic, we are only genuine if we do what we feel like doing. That's in the world around us, we're surrounded by it, we hear it all the time, we like it, we think it's true. And when you allow that world to influence you, it is too easy to forget that God is the great king. He actually thinks this is his world. He thinks that we are supposed to conform to him, not the other way around. 
And so in our age, it's very easy, too easy, to create a picture of God that doesn't exist. Make him too friendly, make him too nice, too grandfatherly. So much so that we can't imagine God saying, verse 10, that he loathes people. People he took care of for 40 years, but who didn't love him. People whose hearts went astray, who wanted something other than him in his ways. It's easy in our age to forget that it's really easy to disgust God. That you and I can sicken him in worship when we sing songs without meaning any of it. It's easy to forget that his response to empty worship is to say, okay, you don't want me? You can have what you want. You can have a life in eternity that has nothing to do with me. Verse 11 is serious. If in worship you discover that what you want is at odds with God, what's that tell you? It tells you that unchecked your heart will go astray from him and you will end up in a place where he is not. And this psalm takes you there puts that right in your face. It takes you there and leaves you there. Leaves you wondering. The, the psalm just ends. It leaves you wondering, is that me? Am I any different? Is my heart hardened? Do I know what I'm doing here Sunday morning? Did I come prepared to be in God's presence? Or is he disgusted with me? This is a heavy song to sing. It's not light. It's a hard song to think about. You should let it be heavy for you. And at the same time, don't overlook the grace that's there. Because this is a warning. That means it's something that has not yet happened. It's supposed to make you think, to reflect, to analyze yourself to give you a chance to act on what you see. And if the thought of not being with God where he is upsets you, what does that tell you? It says that you do want him, that there is something in your heart that still longs for him, that has not gone astray, which means he's not disgusted with you. You may have come into worship this morning in a way that was not right. And yet there's hope here as you meet with God. And the hope, point three, is that there's a way for you and me to refocus our hearts the way that they should be. How do you do that? <laughs> you practice praise. You have to hear God's call to praise like we should, and then you respond to him. Think again about how odd this psalm is in the way that it ends. It starts out so strong and so positive, and it ends so hard. Oh, come, let us sing to the, to the Lord. They shall not enter my rest. You think, why does it end like that? It's because this is not a once-and-done song. It's something that the people of God would sing over and over and over again, which means what? It means that you sing the first half, with the ending in mind. And because you know where this song is going, it changes the way that you sing the first half. 
See, if you know that there's a warning coming at the back end, you sing the front end in light of that warning. And if that warning matters to you, if you don't want to be one of those people that the Lord loathes, if that upsets you, what do you do? You enter that much more into praise on the front end. You take much more seriously what you're doing while you're praising. Let me try it this way. Anyone know the song Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapman? A couple of us. It's old. It goes back to 1974. It's one of those songs that you still hear because of how powerful it is. It's about a father who never has time for his son when his son wants some of his time. Only for the father to discover in the last verse that now that his son has grown up, his son no longer has time for him. All you have to do is hear the song once, and there's something inside of you that makes you want to change those front verses. To tell the dad, say something different. <laughs> do something different. Make different choices. What you're really doing as you listen to the first half is you're counseling yourself. You're telling yourself, take the small moments with your kids more seriously. Don't make the mistakes that the father makes. Don't say what he says. Because at the end of the song, at the end of your life, you don't want to end up in the same place where he is. Psalm 95 can have that same impact on you if you'll let it. The ending stays the same for the generation that God loathed but it doesn't have to stay the same for you. The ending can be different if you take the front half seriously, if you learn to praise what's best, if we learn to shift the object, the focus of our praise, so that we are praising God rather than praising the life that we're hoping to get out of God. How do you do that? You have to take seriously the reasons that God gives you to praise Him, that He's your Creator, and he's your shepherd. Very, very quickly. Verse 3, For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Why do we praise God? He's the creator. He's the one who made everything, which means what? It's all his. He owns all of it. We, pray, we praise people because of what they have, their car, their home, their stock portfolio. We're amazed at them based on what they own because we think it says something about their greatness, about their power, that they are so much bigger in order to have gotten what they have. God's telling you here that he is above and beyond anyone you can imagine. He owns all of it because he made all of it. And so whatever you want to talk about, depths of the earth, heights of the mountains, sea, dry land, it all belongs to him, which means that he's even greater than it all is. And if he's greater than it all is, he can do anything that he wants to with it. And what is it that he wants to do with it? He wants to care for his people. That's the second thing you're called to praise him for, verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture the sheep of his hand. God takes all of that raw, incredible, unimaginable power and uses it to shepherd his people, to give them whatever they need, whatever he thinks they need. 
because he loves them, cares for them. We praise him not just because he's big, but because he's brought us into this close covenant relationship with us that he will honor even when, as his sheep, we stray. And that humbles us. That's why verse 6, we are humble in his presence. Three words there, we worship. It's a word that means we prostrate ourselves before him. We bow down. We kneel before him. We get low before him because we just got done shouting about how great he is and now recognize that he bends all of that greatness for us. And if there's any doubt as to how much he cares about us, about how committed he is to us, we start, verse 1, by reminding ourselves to praise him for being the rock of our salvation. Not just our creator, not just our shepherd, but our savior. He's the one who, even though we stray, comes after us to save us. Now, how can you be sure of that after you've worshipped the wrong things so many times? How can you be sure that he'll save you when your heart strays? It's because that passage in Exodus 17 that we started reading is about so much more than a horrible story about hard, stubborn, straying hearts. It's also about a savior of straying hearts. Let's finish it. Remember where we left off. Moses cried out to the Lord that the people were ready to stone him. And in response, verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Remember the context here. The people tested God, withheld their trust unless God proved himself to them, refused to have faith in him, refused to love him unless he got them out of this mess, unless he proved himself to them. What is that? Uh, that that's treason, right? High treason. They have accused him of not loving him. They have accused God of sin. It's unimaginable sin on their part. They've rejected him, accused him of sin. This is sin that deserves God's wrath and judgment. And God says to Moses, verse 5, take with you some of the elders. Bring the elders together. That's what you would do if you needed to pass judgment on a disputed manner. Israelites have brought a charge, bring the elders together. God tells Moses, bring them together, assemble the court of Israel and bring your staff. Moses still had the staff that he used to strike the Nile. It's the staff of God's judgment against Egypt when Egypt refused to obey him. There's a tension point you should feel here, a sense of danger for the Israelites who have not obeyed. God tells Moses, assemble a court, bring his staff. Justice and judgment are about to be meted out. God has had enough. But instead of ordering Moses to strike the people with the staff, God says to him effectively, my people have sinned, tested me, put me on trial, and I, the great creator king, their shepherd who rescued them from slavery, who carried to them to this point, 
I will submit, not to their trial, not to their judgment of me, but to my own. They have done what is evil in my eyes. They deserve to die, to die of thirst out here in the wilderness. But they will not stand before you. Verse 6. I will. Normal in Scripture for people to stand before God, it's the place of the lesser before the greater. It's normal for humans to do that before God. It's unimaginable that God would stand before anyone. He's the great king before whom all others stand. And yet here, God stands before people, before the elders in a courtroom setting, and says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And Moses can't strike the rock with the staff of judgment without what? without God getting in the way. Because he put himself there in the way of the staff of judgment. And when Moses strikes, what happens? The people live. Life-giving water flows out. That's exactly what they need. Justice and mercy meet. The staff of God's judgment against their sin comes down on the very place where God himself chooses to stand. The people are spared that judgment because he aims it at himself. Their lives are pardoned, no longer forfeit. He gives them what they need to keep on living in the place where the Creator King, the Shepherd King, led them. And it's only because He led them to this place that they have this experience of Him, experience that obviously finds its fulfillment in the cross, where God willingly takes the place of His people, unleashes His judgment for all the times that you and I have grumbled against Him, unleashes that against Himself, that's why gospel worship is so utterly distinct in this world. Because there isn't anyone like this God. Anyone who loves you like he does. That's why we worship here at Renewal Mainline. That's why we should enter into worship with every ounce of strength he gives us. It's why gospel worship should be in the front of your mind when you talk about our church to your friends. It should be in the front of your mind because on a Sunday morning... It needs to be in the front of your heart. Lord Jesus, thank you for taking the judgment that we deserved, for pardoning us, for then pouring out your Spirit into us, for renewing us, giving us hearts that hate going astray, giving us hearts that long to be reconnected with you, that long to praise, that long to enter into praise. Lord Jesus, would you allow us now the freedom 
the privilege of knowing that having been forgiven, nothing stands in the way of us coming and responding to you in song one more time this morning. Lord, unleash us to connect with you in Jesus' name. Amen.